0: Welcome to Life Imperative. I'm Scott Lalonde. In today's conversation, I speak with science educator Britt Ray. Britt grew up in Toronto and has lived around the world, but is now completing her PhD in Science Communication at the University of Copenhagen in the Department of Media, Cognition and Communication. Britt holds an Honors Bachelor of Science in Biology from Queen's University in Kingston and a Masters in Art, Media and Design from OCAD University in Toronto. Britt's first book, Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction, was published in 2017 by Greystone Books in collaboration with the David Suzuki Foundation. Today, we talk about her book and what de-extinction really is, including the many myths surrounding de-extinction. Good morning, Britt. How are you?
1: Hello. I'm well, thanks. How are you?
0: Very good, thanks. So, we're literally, like, days away from your PhD defense. Is that right?
1: I wish I could say so. It still hasn't been scheduled. I've handed in the thing and I'm waiting for the committee to let me know when it can be scheduled. So days away from hopefully finding out. Yes.
0: Right. Okay. (laughs) So I first heard your name a couple years ago um, and I I can't even remember where. I wish I I could remember. But since then, I've followed some of your work a lot on the CBC. And most recently, um, I've really been enjoying your podcast on the BBC and I saw that uh, you were going to do a talk. And um, so I, I signed up. It was it was great. I attended it. Um, I really enjoyed the talk. I knew I would enjoy the book. But now that I've read it, I've, I've really enjoyed how, how far in uh, depth you get with it. Um, so I wanted to share your message on my podcast. Thanks for agreeing to be here.
1: Thank you so much. That's an honor.
0: So why don't you give us a quick overview of the book and um, define de-extinction for us?
1: Sure. Yes. So this book is about this puzzling movement in science called de-extinction, where a variety of researchers are trying to recreate very close versions of extinct species. So it gets talked about as resurrection often in pop, science, culture, media, or bringing back extinct species as though that were possible, such as the woolly mammoth or the passenger pigeon or the heath hen, a variety of others. But we can't resurrect, we can't undo the erasure of an entire way of life, we can't delete the fact that extinction is real and so what is available is a variety of engineering tools and breeding techniques to cobble together animals that are very very similar to extinct species because we can work with their particular genetic sequences and so using cloning and back breeding and gene editing technologies there's a fascinating movement where de-extinction has become possible.
0: Right. And so you kind of, you've been following this for a while now, but mostly based on curiosity, right? Is it like a bit of a fascination for you?
1: Very much so, yes. I I have been following conservation biology since I was a conservation biology student. In my undergrad, I mean, I was studying biology, but conservation was where I put a lot of my interest and, and my passion and my thoughts for developing a future career and I ended up following a different passion of mine, which was broadcasting and storytelling about science, which is why I do this kind of work now. But one day when I was keeping abreast of things in conservation biology after I'd left the lab many years afterwards, I I learned that there were people talking about bringing some version of an extinct species back to life. And this new puzzling word de-extinction was being kicked around. And when I looked into it, I saw that there were high tech entrepreneur type people who had experience in DNA sequencing technologies, looking at how DNA writing technologies and editing technologies could be applied to conservation to try and do something interesting with, for example, the woolly mammoth or passenger pigeon. And it really let my, well, it lit my mind on fire in terms of just personal curiosity because I was concerned that this would be some kind of techno-driven vision of some kind of Silicon Valley style conservation project that wouldn't necessarily do much more than satisfy human curiosity in doing some kind of interesting gee whiz slash set of experiments that could potentially have damaging effects on ecosystems or for individual experimental animals, but I didn't know anything about it, and right. that that was where my mind originally went. It was like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Is this even possible? And all of a sudden, it it just becomes easy to think about the the potential ways that, um, you know, unintended consequences could potentially arise from this. So I did have some initial concerns just on a, a gut level, but I was curious to see how could this be beneficial how could this push science forward how could this do all sorts of interesting things that the advocates were positing it could do and so I pitched it along with a collaborator of mine Sarah Robertson to New York Public Radio one of their shows there called Studio 360 uh, to make a radio piece about this this new idea and there was a big event taking place at National Geographic headquarters where de-extinction researchers were going to go public with their message for the first time as a unified community that was under the banner of revive and restore this nonprofit organization that is pushing the de-extinction mission ahead and trying to do it with transparency and an interest to bring the public in and involve them along the way
0: is this the tedx stuff
1: exactly
0: yeah so i went down okay i'll put a link to that that's great
1: yeah that i mean it was it was really a landmark event for this this topic, for this yeah. field, because they kind of brought a megaphone to the concept for the first time and created this TEDx event around it. And there were ethicists, scientists, journalists, historians, photographers, people weighing in on it from a variety of different directions. And so that's when my first radio piece about de-extinction was broadcast. It was after that, based on some of the interviews I'd done there and then that I edited with Sarah. And um, that was that was really fun. And I wanted to get into it much more after that. It didn't quell my curiosity. It just made me come up with more questions. So I pitched it to CBC radio's ideas with Paul Kennedy as a feature documentary. And they selected it, which would mean that I then had to fill an hour of programming on de-extinction. And that set me off on a a year-and-a-half-long journey to produce this one-hour piece, which meant that I got to meet so many more people connected to the field and develop my understanding of it to a much broader level, much deeper level than before. And uh, when that finally aired in 2014... I felt very satisfied in terms of having answered many more of my questions about de-extinction and developing a much more nuanced appreciation for it than just that intrigue but concern I felt at the beginning. And it was only about two weeks after that it went to air across Canada that I received an email from a publisher asking if I'd be interested in adapting that documentary into a book. And following the field further as it unrolled. And I thought it was spam at first because who just gets an email out of the blue with a publisher asking you in one line if you want to write a book. But when we had a phone conversation, I realized it was legitimate. And he was a great guy with a credible company. So I ended up signing on saying yes, even though I was moving to Copenhagen the next month to start my PhD. So it was kind of a a fun, frenetic, amazing, totally unplanned thing that then pushed me out on another three-year journey of researching the extinction. That's
0: great, and you enjoyed uh, writing the book, I'm sure. You enjoyed the process.
1: I did, actually. Yeah, I really. I can did. tell. Yeah. I can
0: tell by the writing for sure. Um, oh, you, that's nice. you got a couple of these little you know it's it's it, nothing's laugh out loud because it's it's scientific but it, it puts a smile on your face you're following the story with you which i think is great mm. um okay so do you want to talk a bit about gene editing
1: gene editing technology
0: is an
1: area of capacity that scientists have had for quite a while now where using a variety of different tools that can go into the genome of a species, whether that be a bacterium, an animal, a plant, a human, and actually change the genetic code that then is the instructions for a variety of different proteins to be made that can carry out different reactions that allow that organism to live. And since 2012, there's been an incredibly popular new and It is not an overstatement to say revolutionary gene editing tool that has come into the scientific sphere called CRISPR or CRISPR-Cas9 and it's a naturally occurring defense system of bacteria that they use to ward off infection from invading viruses. It allows them to detect when a virus has injected its own genetic material into its cell which is then trying to hijack and take over the cells natural dna replication machinery in order to take and make many copies of viral genetic particles that would eventually kill the cell and break it and allow viruses to scatter out and infect other cells in the vicinity of that cell and so what bacteria with with crispr have been able to do is detect when that foreign dna is is bad dna it's invading virus trying to basically take it over and it can deploy enzymes that act like a molecular scalpel or set of scissors that cut up that DNA and deactivate it and stop the infection. And then it can actually store bits of that broken up viral genetic information in its own genome to act kind of like a vaccination card where you can see a track record of who you've been infected by in future generations that gets passed on to the cells that they split into. and then if they get infected by some kind of viral particle that has a matching genome sequence to what it has on file, then it can once again whip out these scissors, cut it up, and stop the infection. And this goes on and on and on. And it took a long time and scores of researchers all over the world to finally figure out what was going on with these these bacterial and um, there's another microorganism called archaea that also uses the system. But eventually in 2012, they discovered what's going on and realized that because of the way that this system operates, you can actually program it to go into any type of cell and cut up DNA there, not just that which matches an invading virus. So this is incredibly powerful because it means that scientists can then program this CRISPR system to find any genetic sequence in any genome. Let's say a sequence that creates a genetic disease like sickle cell disease, because they understand the mutation that causes that unfortunate disease outcome. And you can direct the CRISPR system at that part of a human cell, and it can whip out the scissors, so to speak, cut up that DNA where it's mutated, and even edit the DNA so switch it with new genetic letters of the bases of DNA, ACTG. And in that sense, like a word processor, start to change the language of the genetic code and correct it from a faulty gene that causes disease to a repaired gene that would create just a healthy, normal, benign outcome.
0: So in the book, you've written that these scientists are really doing it for their, their main focus is ecological restoration, I believe, is, is what you called it. Um, but how do you feel about the process?
1: So when you can change DNA on demand, in that sense, you can do things like cure genetic disease, which we're increasingly coming to, to do. However, you can also edit extinct genes from long-gone animals into the genomes of closely related animals that are here and have viable cells to give. So in a de-extinction example right now at Harvard in George Church's lab, he has a bunch of elephant cells that he uses gene editing technology CRISPR on in order to introduce woolly mammoth-specific DNA into. So little by little, you can cobble the genome of a living Asian elephant into something that resembles the genome of the extinct relative being the woolly mammoth, then you have the the basic building blocks in order to try and recreate that animal if you could put that inside an embryo and gestate it, bring it to term inside a surrogate mother or something like an artificial womb. So I did at first feel quite skeptical about de-extinction and I've, I've come to appreciate much more about its ambitions, about its aims, about how it could be used to possibly restore ecosystems that have lost some kind of functional diversity when important players aka keystone species have disappeared and often in cases where humans have made a species go extinct whether that be a passenger pigeon or something like a heath hen you could if you're interested in moral arguments say that when and if we have the technologies in order to do something to reconstitute the genomes of extinct animals that we may disappear, we ought to do it. Because if you can bring back an animal that has the traits of that extinct species and improve the productivity of an ecosystem by reinserting it there, then, by gosh, go do it. That's what some people say. But it's way more complicated than that when you look
0: at how it plays out. And this isn't the scientists that are saying this.
1: Well, it is... In some cases. Uh, So Michael Archer is a scientist in Australia who has been heavily involved in de-extinction since before Revive and Restore got involved. He worked on the Tasmanian tiger, also known as the thylacine, um, quite a long time ago, actually. He was trying to clone it back to life based on the preserved DNA that he had in in a pup that was in a pickled jar from this extinct marsupial tiger that went extinct in 1939 in the Beaumaris Zoo and he got a lot of press for this and he made a lot of public statements about Why we should be able to get this animal back and why we have a duty to bring it back given that we made it go extinct and he quotes in One video that I've seen of him. He quotes from the Bible and talks about moral duty And so sometimes the rhetoric does get very um, morally loaded by people who are pushing the science forward. However, this is certainly not something that the scientific movement overall gets behind. What the scientific movement gets behind is the idea that an ecosystem could be restored in in a beneficial way. And then I've seen other advocates such as Stuart Brand, who is not a scientist, In the lab, he is trained as a conservation biologist, but he is a a spokesperson for de-extinction, and he's an enabler of de-extinction because he co-founded Revive and Restore with his wife, Ryan Phelan, who's an entrepreneur in uh, the DNA technology space, and he has said um, in TED Talks and in interviews, For example, that if you have these technologies, then you ought to bear down and make it happen and try to undo some of the harm that humans have caused in this moment that we're currently living in of ecological degradation.
0: Right. And some people that you've interviewed for this book, they've said that, you know, you're sort of putting a spotlight on this and making it popular. The quote is breeding fondness through familiarity. So what do you say to those people that, um, what have you said to those people that have that you're interviewing that that say that type of thing?
1: I mean, it's compelling at first. I understand their concerns that I am stoking a fire, which otherwise wouldn't be as hot if I weren't there. You know, getting people used to this idea, which perhaps is quite a dangerous idea to get used to. It could invoke and introduce all sorts of new moral hazards and attitudes into our culture that we don't need. Uh, such as the idea that it's okay to let species go extinct if we can just bring back certain important functional parts of their genes in the future by, you know, engineering these close mimicking animals that could play out their ecological role. However, I firmly believe that de extinction has 100% of its momentum with or without me and will be going ahead, of course, without my. Uh, paying attention to it. And so my job is to using the unique position that I have from the knowledge that I've gained present a multi-sided perspective on what is happening so that people can make up their minds for themselves, hopefully with a lot of critical insight because I am not interested in window dressing this movement as something that is good for conservation or good for ecosystems or good for science, because there's a lot of uncertainty involved. And there are a lot of potential unintended consequences. And we need to be extremely responsible about how we use these tools if we are going to use them. But we're at a unique position now, it's still early days, we can still have a multi stakeholder based conversation around how to direct policies, procedures. And I think it's Uh, An an exciting thing, if you are concerned and upset about de-extinction, then all the more reason to to come and talk and make your voice heard and speak with researchers and see how you can invest new angles into the discourse, because it is moving ahead with or without commentators such as myself. Right.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Okay, so you dedicate the book to the the three. Northern white rhinos, right? Yes. I don't know how many people have dedicated books to, to animals, but um, talk about them a bit because you, you visited them. You were there in person. You spent some time with them. Um, do you have any updates on them? Is there anything else you can tell us about them?
1: Well, they are a father, a daughter, and a granddaughter. The last three living northern white rhinos in the world habitate on the equator in Kenya at this place called Pejeta. It's a conservancy there. And it's a really beautiful and also heartbreaking experience going to see them because it's, it's amazing to be in the presence of these majestic creatures of which they are the last. And you just know how precious and important and critical their lives are. And uh, then you realize, oh, Sudan, the old... Papa can't even live around his kin because they're afraid that if he gets excited and sees his daughter or granddaughter and falls over and breaks a hip that he's going to die. He's already in his forties and he's expected to naturally die relatively soon because of his life and life expectancy of the species. And then there's the fact that they're all infertile. They have a variety of different reproductive issues that make it impossible for them to bear their own children plus children. Can you call them children if they're rhinos? I don't think so. Um, (laughs) their own, their own offspring, but, um, then they're super highly related. And if they even were able to reproduce and they tried to get it on with each other, it wouldn't be good for the species. It'd be hugely bottlenecked. They'd have really low genetic diversity. And so they are this hot opportunity Mm -hmm for genetically inclined reproductive scientists to look at how emerging tech can be applied to giving this species another chance using things like induced pluripotent stem cell technologies and cloning and gene editing and a variety of methods that are now in a fascinating strategy being, being thought of in order to try and bring these guys back to healthier numbers in terms of creating rhinos that have their northern white rhino DNA. So, I don't have updates on what has happened to any of them since I saw them last year. I do keep in touch with them just in terms of following their what their keepers put on social media and, and reading articles about them. However, the good update is that we haven't lost another right. one. Throughout the time that I was writing my book, we went from five northern white rhinos down to three, and so I was expecting potentially by now there would be even fewer. But yeah, they're still there. So
0: what would you say to somebody who says, "What's the big deal about losing the northern white rhino when we have other rhino species?" And uh, what what like what are the thoughts on on that kind of thing?
1: Well, different people answer that differently. Personally, I think animals have intrinsic value. I think that if there is a species that had a unique ecological role to play which it's believed the northern white rhino did, even though they're closely related to their subspecies, the southern white rhino and they look a little bit different and um, they're, they're a species that has value in and of themselves. I believe we should care about that. Others are very utilitarian about it and they look at what kind of a potentially commercial value they have had for humans, if ever at all, what kind of ecosystem services they play that no other species or subspecies could play in order to see whether they're worth saving. And I just find that that's such a sad way of carving up life because we as humans put them in these small boxes, these taxonomic boxes Because we find a systemic way of naming them and then we divide them and we say you're valuable because you do this in a different way than this other closely related version of you that we gave a different name. And uh, just the fact that we divide and we have no unified way to talk about speciation. There's different theories and when you apply the theory of what it is to be a species to animals you end up with a different amount of species every time. Sometimes it's about reproductive measures. You know, is a species only a species when it can sexually reproduce with with others? Um, we also know that many many species can se- sexually reproduce with with things that are quite different from it, and then hybridize into new new types of animals. So, um, yeah, I just if I'm answering that from a, from a personal place, I just say that it's intrinsically important to conserve their their biodiversity but others especially other um, ecosystem based thinkers might say as long as the ecological role that they play is particularly unique to them they're the only ones that do it then we should save them then we should really try hard right and if it's not super unique let's let their cousins over there do the work
0: okay well thank you for putting your personal opinion in there one other thing you talk about is how crucial archiving is to de-extinction. Um, so I wanted to have you talk a bit about the frozen zoo and um, cryogenic animal art type places. Yeah, sure.
1: So since the late 60s, 70s, there have been efforts to try and store and preserve genetic diversity. Because we know that freezing DNA in dry environments means that it doesn't break down in the way that it naturally does when it's exposed to room temperature areas with oxygen, for example. Because once, uh, once a cell is removed and, and starting to die and break down, oxygen changes the, the pH levels in the cells, which means that the enzymes bonkers and they start running around and cutting up DNA and turning it into a very fragmented mess essentially which is why DNA ancient DNA is so hard to work with It's it's highly degraded but if you put it on ice and you keep it dry this doesn't happen or it happens far 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 less and in order to conserve biodiversity in general, we need to make sure that we know what those genetic codes are and what those um, biotissues are in order to apply advanced technologies that have to do with cloning and gene editing. So people had the wherewithal starting several decades ago to, to try and save this amount of biodiversity that we still have before species disappear. And there's a place called the Frozen Zoo at the San Diego Zoo in California that is so instrumental to so many conservation projects because, you know, they have reproductive cells of pandas, for example, and giant tortoises and and everything in between. And this means that researchers then have the materials that they need to, to do beneficial bioengineering work around them. There were arguments made back when these places appeared that, oh, well, now we don't need to worry about animals going extinct right. because will always have their building blocks to work with. And this is a similar argument to what we hear now with de-extinction. People who say that it introduces a moral hazard have a problem with the idea that it might make people relaxed about extinction as it's currently occurring, more relaxed than we already are, because we currently let a lot of extinction take place obviously that we could do more to prevent. De-extinction advocates such as Ryan Phelan, one of the co-founders of Revive and Restore, says, you know, those were bogus arguments back when the first frozen zoos were created. And we never saw it create widespread changes in attitudes about extinction and its importance. And therefore, we shouldn't fall for the trap that that kind of faulty thinking would pervasively change our cultural approaches to extinction now. It's just another set of tools to help us work with the mission of conserving biodiversity.
0: So tell me a bit more about those tools. How does the extinction help save species that, other species that they'll impact or or live with? And what are are some of the scientists talking about on that?
1: You mean in terms of helping endangered species and not just bringing back ones that are already extinct? Right, yeah,
0: Yeah. and not even endangered species, but just, just ensuring that fewer species will become endangered.
1: So there are a variety of different ways that synthetic biology, being this area of advanced bioengineering tools, is starting to come together with conservation biology and have discussions about what might it mean to take our paradigm and view of looking at the world and mix it with yours and, and boost conservation biology, which is a pretty old and traditional field in terms of the ways that it's been approaching species savior. How could that be boosted with these, these high-tech tools? Some of it relates to, you know, for example, with the northern white rhinos coming up with new measures to, for example, take skin cells from the females, revert them into reproductive cells with this kind of induced pluripotent stem cell engineering technology, which is totally amazing, where you can take any cell and basically send it back in time to what it used to be like. Before it was a specialized cell, when it was a type of stem cell that could differentiate into things like a kidney cell or part of your skin. And when they can revert a skin cell back into that stage, that means that they can push it forward and direct it to become a new kind of cell that it wasn't originally. And when you have a bunch of rhinos that are nowhere near high-tech laboratories because they're in the middle of the equator in Kenya and they're very fragile and you don't want to airlift them anywhere because they're the only two females left of the species and you can't get their eggs out because it's highly complicated. Being able to take one of their skin cells, revert it to a stem cell-like state and then coax it to become an egg cell, a reproductive cell, which is now possible, is an incredible suite of synthetic approaches to working with their biomaterials That then opens up new possibilities, because using the sperm of long-dead northern white rhinos that's frozen at places like the frozen zoo in San Diego that we just chatted about, you can then imagine inseminating and, well, fertilizing that egg, which is engineered from their skin cell, so that you could actually create a genetically robust northern white white rhino embryo, which could then be implanted in a surrogate rhino of another species or subspecies that is less fragile and could more easily handle experimental pregnancies in order to start growing their numbers back. These are the types of roundabout approaches to imagining their survival that this combination of conservation and synthetic biology is is taking place. But there's also other things such as, um, let's say, black-footed ferrets. So there are so many ferrets in the world. However, strangely, they all descended from about seven founders because there was a huge bottleneck in their population when after many of them were wiped out, there were only seven that could be salvaged, put in a breeding program. And then now, even though they span from Canada down to Mexico, all of them are so closely genetically related that they have inbreeding problems and they have a tough time with fertility. And so by going into their genomes and editing more genetic diversity into them with tools like crispr 9 you can start to see how you diversify and enable robustness for a species that otherwise on its own right now is having a difficult time doing a good job at essentially just maintaining their survival without human intervention. Then... There's other situations such as controlling wildlife diseases that get spread to our species. Uh, Malaria gets carried by mosquitoes that have a parasite that infects us. And since CRISPR was discovered, another area of its application called gene drive has been heavily researched and invested in, and this is the idea that instead of leaving the Chances of inheriting a certain gene up to the natural laws of sex and inheritance, which says there's a 50-50 chance that the progeny is going to inherit this this gene that you give it. You can drive an engineered gene into a population nearly 100% of the time. You can bypass natural sexual inheritance and ensure that the mosquitoes that you engineer to be resistant to the parasite that carries malaria to humans... Can actually propagate itself through all of the progeny that the mosquitoes you engineer it into will create and in a quickly reproducing species like mosquitoes mm-hmm. that means that you can change the genetic makeup of an entire population very quickly make them all unable to pass this parasite that causes malaria onto each other and onto humans wiping out that wildlife disease threat now it's shown that gene drive in mosquitoes is so powerful that they've actually recently, the very same researchers who discovered this idea and popularized it since CRISPR came about, have now published saying it is far too effective as a technology that we should not do field trials with it because these mosquitoes could go so far so quickly and change the genetic makeup of far more than we intended to. So you can effectively wipe out a whole species very quickly if if you program the gene drive in a certain way right
0: like to to not produce proper eggs or or females yeah
1: yeah or to make all of them male or something yeah Yeah.
0: wow um okay so one of the things when i was reading about the passenger pigeon how quickly it went extinct i I thought that was uh, sort of crazy um like billions of individuals um and I think you even saved one of the possibly the most common bird on earth to being extinct in like 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. And is that, uh, I sort of took that as a warning for, for us humans, because, you know, right now we we just can't see extinction in our future, right? Um, because there's so many of us, we have problems with overpopulation and, and that, but it, it it's a real possibility that uh, a, a species with a with seven billion um, members can can go extinct in a in a short amount of time, do you want to speak to that a little bit?
1: Sure, I think that's a fascinating point. We have not developed very good brains in terms of being able to assess our own risk of extinction, have we? We certainly have a very primal drive to feel like everything's always going to be all right. It is true that The passenger pigeon, due to market hunting, went from billions to none in roughly 50 years, which is quite unbelievable. They were so abundant that they were just so easy to catch and they were a very cheap source of good protein that we went to town killing in order to pack full into barrels and then ship out on rail lines to big cities where they would be served and sold as food. So It is interesting to make the comparison to our own extinction. There is uh, a small but very active research community looking at existential risk for our own species in the future at places like Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute and the Center for Existential Risk at Cambridge and the Future of Life Institute at MIT Harvard um, in that area. So they look at things such as artificial intelligence, and the possibility of a meteor crashing into the earth, or um, devastating climate change, synthetic engineered pathogens, being these types of threats that could change our environment so drastically that we're no longer talking about catastrophic risk, we're talking about existential risk, meaning that no species survives. The planet will survive, but us and our ability to occupy it, potentially not. And I'm actually I'm trying to learn as much as I can lately about some of their arguments and paradigms for assessing such risk and uh, and how quick they see it coming. And based on the risk that you're talking about, they have different parameters for for looking at when such things might become more or less serious to think about. So it's. um, it's an interesting time. I don't think that we at all have a, a cultural conversation set up on a wide societal level to talk seriously about our own extinction. We can't even agree with each other about whether or not climate change is real, right. let alone whether or not we should be afraid of something like artificial super intelligence making uh, the planet no longer habitable for us because of loss of control.
0: Well, one of my questions was in a few hundred years from now, what sort of ethical questions. Will the super AI robots be asking themselves about bringing us back from extinction once once we've already, you know, gone extinct? They, they, they'll they have the same sort of questions that we, we're having now about the mammoth. Ah, should we bring them back? Should we? Totally. Yeah. So it's, it's <laughs> kind of crazy.
1: It's interesting when you think about that thought exercise, because then you can ask yourself, would I want to be brought back? Right. Would I want to be, you know, reconstituted in some future world where the power has shifted and it is in the hands of some kind of, let's, for lack of a better term, let's call it some AI mm-hmm. superintelligence. Who knows what? It, what? And um, is that a world we'd want to occupy? Is it not just an AI-driven project of curiosity to do that? And then if we shift the parameters and put it into the de-extinction frame, what would these species, if we could ever communicate with them in the past, what would they think about our efforts to try and bring them back now? Would they feel like this is truly an act of care for the environment or care for their genomic diversity? (laughs) Um, Is this something that would be beneficial for them and their livelihoods? Or would they see us as completely narcissistically um, involved with some kind of curiosity or vanity project?
0: Yeah, you talk about the last chance tourism is one of the terms where you know they bring them back and they put them in a zoo, and then you know everybody, oh, come see the the extinct Tasmanian uh, tiger. You also talk about um, exotic food. How much could you sell mammoth steaks for, right? If you brought them back, because people are going to pay a lot of money to say, yeah, I had a mammoth steak. You talk about it in your book. Do you want to say something about that more than what you just said?
1: So one of the interesting things about the high degree of engineering that's required to make many of these animals that are being worked on, such as the passenger pigeon or the woolly mammoth, is that it makes them eligible for patenting. The law can apply to them in such a way that the creator could patent this organism as some kind of invention because you see that it's clearly distinct from the natural variety. There's some kind of inventive step which then becomes uh, a case for intellectual property. And when patenting is enabled, that means that profiting in a variety of different ways is enabled. Now, of course, maybe those patents won't get licensed in such scenarios, but I have been interviewing and working alongside lawyers who work on genetic technologies and have been writing about de-extinction in order to research for the book. And they've helped me imagine speculative scenarios in which the ability for these animals in certain jurisdictions to be patented means that we could imagine people trying to profit from them in unecological ways, such as with tourism, such as with, um, you know, illegal pet markets. We can't currently control the illegal trade of animals as it is for human consumption and enjoyment as pets and things like this. So you can imagine potentially the kind of illicit interest in something that you could market as being back from the dead. Um, but then there's other interesting legal scenarios you need to think of, which is not just how many people unecologically profit, but how are we going to ensure that we can use the laws that we have, which currently aren't built for the unprecedented scenario of having de-extincted animals in the world, in order to protect them so that we don't hurt them, harm them, harvest land that they need, uh, create a scenario where they could only live in captivity. Because if the idea is really to revive and restore ecosystems that are missing some kind of keystone species activity, then they need to be in the wild, right? So we need to make sure that they can be managed there in a way that's beneficial for their flourishing rather than create patented animals that live in a zoo somewhere.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Well, thank you so much for, the, for talking about your book. Again, I think it's a, a great book. I think anybody who's interested in any sort of science and genes and, and obviously de-extinction, ethics, there's so much to take in in this book. And it's all done in such a great way that it's understanding for laymen such as myself. And, and, and it's, it's conversational. It's, it, it shows your passion. I think all that's very good. Before we go I would like to hear a bit more about what else you're doing. I've been listening to your podcast with the BBC Tomorrow's World with Ellie Cosgrave. Yeah,
1: that's Ellie. Yeah,
0: Ellie and you guys are you guys are really really great to listen to and you're sort of I mean you jump right in. You got you're you're not in the studio. You're 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 out there mic in hand and just throwing yourselves <laughs> in. You sure are. But at the end you really, you know, you've learned a ton of stuff. So Thanks for putting that t- together. So, so tell me, just tell me a couple things that I mean. You have so much on the go right now. Tell me a bit about it, and then just tell me where we can find out more about you. Yeah, sure,
1: totally. So, the podcast with Ellie, Tomorrow's World, is coming out now. There's fresh episodes every two weeks, and it is a really high energy surf through emerging science and tech bringing you on a ride to envision what might be around the corner in the future based on realistic scientific developments that are happening today. We explore things such as the future of climate change and whether or not we're going to be able to live in human-created floating cities that some people are trying to prototype now in order to bypass some of the devastating effects of that. Or the theory that we're living in a simulation of a highly evolved, sophisticated species of intelligence that is not us, which sounds really wacky, but there are some very interesting philosophers and scientists who get behind this. Then there's, you know, existential risk from artificial intelligence, which we've touched on, what brain-machine interfaces are going to be doing to our bodies and to our ways of relating to each other and our communication. And so that has been a wild, almost whiplash experience for me, experiencing these different areas of of science and tech that are really revolutionizing what it means to be human and are very ethically contentious and needy that we need to be dealing with before they get here. So that's, that's the podcast, BBC Tomorrow's World. And then I'm working on a documentary series with the National Film Board of Canada that I'm directing, and that's about human genetic modification wow. and personal genomics So we have been collecting stories and working with people who are confronting big decisions in their lives that deal with either discovering things about their genetic realities or changing things about their genetics Mm. and how this makes people vulnerable to different things along the way. And it's been a really interesting investigation so far. So we'll be going into production in 2018. And I'm, I'm heads down right now researching and thinking about possibly the next book and I have some other filming gigs and things like this but it's science storytelling in different platforms yeah. i guess you could say
0: yeah no that's great and please keep working on the books because i i've been in, enjoying the readings and i think you're the next generation of the the dawkinses and the and the Sagans, so so please do that and and the bill nye's of the world so we need some younger people
1: that's incredibly kind thank you put that (laughs) in my (laughs)
0: um yeah so no that's that's great we can uh we can leave it here just please tell us where we can find you and thank you so much for for coming on the podcast thank you for having me
1: scott it's really just great to chat with you and if anyone is interested in looking into some of the things that I'm doing my website is brittray.com so b-r-i-t-t-w-r-a-y.com and same thing on twitter if you want to at me anytime
0: thanks a lot Britt I really appreciate it no problem thank you Life Imperative is an independent podcast produced by Toronto photographer Scott Lalonde For more information about the Life Imperative Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or visit my website at scottlalone.com. Thank you for listening.